I'm joined today on the podcast by my one of my favourite fo- football writers of my lifetime, someone who, when I started the podcast, I wanted on, but I never ever thought I'd be lucky enough to, to speak with him, but I've got him and I cannot believe it. Thank you for joining me, Gab Marcotti. Great to be with you. I want to start, Gab, by talking about your role with ESPN FC. I love the show. I really enjoy reading your articles for ESPN as well. But I want to ask you about two of the big characters you work alongside, being Craig Burley and Stevie Nicol. They're not shy of an opinion, and and, and you like to try and keep them in check, which I love um, watching and hearing. Uh, what are they like to work with? Um. Well, look. I mean, as you can probably tell from watching the show, we we, we have a lot of fun. Um, they're they're very different characters. I mean, Craig. I've actually actually first met Craig many 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 years ago uh, when uh, I was starting out, and uh, you know he was uh, I think he had just moved to Derby County uh, from Chelsea. So you know we, we'd be talking. I don't know. We're certainly dating ourselves, but it's a good. It's a good two decades ago. Um, <laughs> You know, he's somebody very forthright with his opinions, but he's also somebody who who really is well prepared. You know, you can agree with him or or disagree with him, but um, you know, he spends he spends a lot of time um, he spends a lot of time making sure that he's across what happens. You know, he he reads a lot, he prepares a lot. Um, I think a lot of times, a lot of pundits just kind of think that you know, well, I was a now, I'm a former pro or, or I'm articulate or whatever. Um, but, you know, you have to put in the legwork. Uh, and I think Craig certainly does that from day one. He may, he, he may give off this idea of sort of this grumpy guy who doesn't care. But uh, let me tell you, he's, um, he's, he's a tremendous professional um, who, who really works, uh, works very hard at what he does. As for Stevie, um, man, I remember... I was I was very young. I was a kid. I remember watching. I guess Stevie would have been young then too. Um, the uh, 1984 uh, European Cup final. My first memory of Stevie was him missing a penalty, um, and uh, and then you know, obviously he went on to have have this incredible um, career, um, and you know, Stevie's. Stevie's a wonderful person. He's, I, I think he's got, you know, a real eye for the game. Watching a game with Stevie, he'll, he'll point stuff out um, that I think a lot of people would miss. But, of course, he sees it, you know, through the eye of, of not just a, a great footballer, but also, and, and people forget this, people may not know this on this side of the pond, but, you know, Stevie was a very, very successful coach in um, in MLS as well. I think he went, three or four MLS Cup finals. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of tremendous, there's a lot of very gifted footballers who, you know, don't really see the whole picture of what's going on on the pitch. But um, Stevie, I think, manages to do both. One of the things that made me laugh last year was your debate with, with uh, both guys about the expected goals. You're like myself, you enjoy statistics and you enjoy referencing them when, when it's appropriate to do so. Was was that debate one that was enjoyable for yourself looking back on it? I mean, that certainly got a lot of attention. Um, uh, like I, I wouldn't say I enjoy statistics, but I think, you know, on a macro level, um, there are certain trends that we know are correct and, you know, when it comes to expected goals, there are professional gamblers out there who use expected goals to take their money um, and make more money off it. So if it didn't work, if it was all just nonsense, as some people like to say, then, well, then uh, they wouldn't be doing it, right? I mean, it's kind of been proven that you know there is meaning to it and that there's probably more meaning to it than you know, it's really in terms of, of predicting future success than, you know, results or the league table. So, um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, we, I think we, we looked at that issue differently. And to be fair to Craig, he does have a point. They, you know, expected goals, um, you know, they're more meaningful over time. Uh, you know, in a single game, a team could dominate and, 
I suppose if they don't create chances or, you know, or based on individual incidents, they, you know, the other team could, could have a higher expected goals total. I think that's certainly accurate. They become less meaningful when we're talking about single games. And I think that's what he was trying to get across. But, you know, to me, the whole notion with expected goals is kind of reflects the way normal people talk about games. You know, when, how many times have we watched games where, you know, afterwards we might, you know, over, over a drink or chatting to a friend, we might say, well, wow, you know, we got absolutely battered. They had so many chances to score. We couldn't create anything, but, you know, we were lucky to win because, you know, we had one shot from 30 yards out and somebody scored a worldie. You know, we, we do that all the time, right? And, you know, that's what expected goals, that's what expected goals do. That's what they measure. Two other projects that you work on at ESPN I'm interested to ask you about. First of all, the Gab and Jules podcast. Julian is another football writer like yourself who I, I really admire. I think, again, like yourself, very articulate, very measured, doesn't just say things for a reaction. There's substance to what he says. What's that podcast been like for you? Because obviously you had a, a successful podcast um, when you were at the Times for many, many years, which, which I loved. And when you left, I was worried... We're not going to have another podcast, but I must say I'm absolutely loving the the Gavin Jules podcast that's that's now replaced that. Um, well, thank you, first of all. Um, it's it's been great working with Jules because a he is somebody who works really really hard to to stay on top of things and is informed, and um, I think that's I think that's really important. I think that's part of the reason why people um, you know turn to podcasts. You know, we've got this great privilege that, you know, we get paid to go and, and try to stay across football. Um, and, you know, and I think it's a privilege, but it's also responsibility. And Jules works very, very hard. He's always available. What we try to do in that podcast and, you know, I, we try to do the podcast that I would have wanted to listen to. And it's not going to be for everybody. The same way the Times, um, the, the, the game podcast as you mentioned, I, I did for the, at the Times for for 13 years. That wasn't for everybody either. What you know, what we try to hit is what most people want to talk about, but we always want to have a conversation about it. One of my absolute pet peeves, and I have this argument with uh, a colleague, uh, a former colleague of mine, good friend of mine, uh, Raf Honigstein, all the time, uh, is this. A lot of times you'll hear, like, if you listen to, to, to Five Live or some other podcast, like, okay, now let's turn to our uh, our German expert. And, you know, then German expert, whoever he may be, will talk for, you know, five minutes and everybody will just sit and listen. And then be like, okay, now let's go to our Italian expert or our Spanish expert. And I absolutely hate that. Or what I hate, what I hate even more is when people are like, oh, you know, Raf, give us the German view. You know, we're all individuals. We're all speaking for ourselves. We can't give you the German view. We're, we're not spokespeople for 80 million people. Um, you know, I think what people want to have is a conversation. We're at the stage in football now where, you know, most weekends, maybe not most fans, but many fans, you know, in addition to following their own club, wherever, wherever that might be, you know, they're also across the biggest clubs in Europe and the biggest stories in Europe, whether it's, you know, if, if you're in England, you know, you'll you'll know uh, what's going on at Real Madrid or Barcelona or Bayern or Juventus. You know, you'll 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 care um, to some degree without being a fan, you know, in the same way that you might not be a United fan. But you'll know about Manchester United. You'll, you'll have a sense of what's going on. And that's what we try to hit. And that's why we try to hit the big clubs. The one thing that bugs me most of all is when people talk about stuff that they're really not across. So when mainstream, you know, this is a very mainstream show. Um, and, you know, when people kind of pay lip service to stuff that they're not following at all. Uh, I, I used to, um, you know, I've done radio shows uh, in the past uh, where, and this would really, really bug the crap out of me. You know, you talk Premier League for 40 minutes and it's like, oh, now let's talk about the Football League for 10, for 10 minutes because, you know, People, that's really important. People care about that. And, you know, it would turn into somebody looking at the league table and like, oh, well, Wigan, well, you had a good result this past weekend. Now, look, you're, you know, 
you're six points clear of the drop now, so Wigan's doing well. Um, you know, all this freaking Captain Obvious stuff. Yeah. And that just drove me mad. I thought that's doing a disservice to these people. You know, let local media, people who really know about these teams and these leagues, talk about it. Um, and, you know, that is something that, you know, I strenuously always tried to avoid, uh, both at the Times and now with uh, with Jules. Working alongside Jules, as you've said, I, I like that approach you've just mentioned there about getting people on to to, to give their views and, and not trying to pigeonhole them into being the, the German view or the Spanish view or the or the, the French view. Or, you know, I, I do like that. And you've had Mark Gogden on quite a lot and, and Jan Inga Ford on quite a lot as well. What's it like working with those two? Because they, they aren't shy of an opinion. Yeah, I mean, look, Augie, Augie, Mark Ogden is just a professional, right? He's He's been doing this stuff for a long time. Um, he's he's extremely strong with his sources and his knowledge uh, of football in the Northwest. Um, he does like bringing this up very often um, because, you know, he is, he does have very different personalities from the rest of us, but, you know, he did... I think he played he played with or against Paul Scholes many many years ago uh, when he was in school, but like you know right up until his teenage years, uh, so he can play a little too. Um, although I imagine Scholes was probably slightly more uh, talented than he was. Um, but he's uh, you know he's another great professional. He's somebody who who you know gets a task to do and and he goes and he does and he does it very well. He comes up with ideas. He's creative as well. Um, and, and it's great to have him on. Uh, Jan, man, I remember Jan as, um, as a player. Jan is kind of a, a force of nature. You know, he's very charismatic. Um, he speaks really well. He's obviously, you know, not just, um, he covers a lot of Bundesliga stuff because he worked for uh, German television. I think still still does occasionally. Works for Norwegian television. He kind of also has this sort of, you know, pan-European perspective, um, which I think is very important. On top of that, you know, he was he was a very successful footballer too, uh, with a with a, with a long professional career. So um, it's great to be able to work with him as well. Another project that I want to ask you about is the very awesome work that you do. It's it's normally quite common to really love the domestic league from, from the country that you were born or are most associated with and your love of Italian football is is clear for all to see and hear. How good is it doing that podcast with Mina and Nikki? Well it's I mean it's 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 great because obviously, you know, they they really they cover this full time. They're uh, Mina Mina especially is is really passionate about it. I mean, I'm not suggesting Nikki's not or or I'm not, but obviously Nikki's half Italian. I'm Italian. Mina, I think, represents a slightly different um, type of fan. Mina is not Italian, uh, and yet, you know, she's been in in, in love with uh, with Syria uh, from the time she was a little girl, and she's another one that's you know had the privilege to then go and. And, and cover and report on Serie A professionally, and, um, and 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 she really devotes a lot of time to it. Um, and you know, when you get that mixture of of I think you know passion and knowledge that that she and and Nikki bring to the show, um, you know, hopefully we get we get something good out of it. As you probably know, if you're a regular listen, listener, we often disagree. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but I don't mind that at all. Like, I don't, you know, I think it also comes down to the kind of media that you're used to. You know, in Italy, we've got, you know, radio shows and TV shows at all hours where people disagree and they, they, they disagree with each other's takes, you know. Um, I think that that also reflects how fans often talk about football. Absolutely. And, you know, I sometimes find it jarring when I see other shows where, you know, everybody gives their opinion and everybody's trying to sort of nods along and and you move on. I mean, again, some people will like that. Some people will say that, you know, what we do is, uh, is a, it's a, it's a, somebody use the term uncomfortable listen and there's tension. Well, you know what? It's fine that there's tension where, you know, we love football. We, we speak to football fans. Football fans are tense and um, and, and, and that's, that's the nature of, of fandom. 
I want to rewind to, to your upbringing and talk about Gab Marcotti, the player. Which position did you play when you were growing up, Gab? So, I played football through to the end of high school. I also played rugby, and I was a better rugby player than a footballer, so I played rugby at university as well, uh, whereas I only had sort of quick kickabouts after school. Um, I played uh, uh, center back or, or, or central midfield, mostly defensive midfield. Um, I'd be lying if I said I was particularly good, but, you know, I did... I did win a few headers and put in a few tackles and waved my arms a lot and gave a lot of instruction. And, you know, I, I mastered the art of the um, sort of the, the five-yard pass to a more talented player. <laughs> what I want to ask you about, for those who don't know, which team did you support and follow growing up and who were your footballing heroes as a kid? So, yeah, I, I don't really talk about who I supported growing up because um, I don't support them now, and that's kind of um, you know, and then that's kind of a complicated thing. But I can tell you who my who my footballing my early footballing heroes were, um, and although this will this will date me, but um, of the people I got to see regularly, um, I loved. Uh, uh, Walter Zenga, the Inter Milan goalkeeper, Spider-Man. Um, I, I loved Diego Maradona. Um, and, you know, the, the, not, not just his skills, although obviously that made him stand out. Um, but the, you know, the, the, just, just generally the aura with him and uh, everything that kind of, that kind of came along with it. Um, I loved, uh, you know, I I got only got to see Liverpool in in European Cups, but um, at the time, but I loved uh, Kenny Dalglish, um, and you know, I didn't get to see young Kenny Dalglish. Um, I got to see old Kenny Dalglish, but what struck me about old Kenny is that he had this boyishness to him even when he was old, which. Which we kind of also, which you kind of almost have even today. Obviously, much older. Um, I just thought it was a real privilege um, to, uh, to 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 see him play. Um, but I mean, you know, there, there, there's so many from uh, from that time period that that I really enjoyed uh, watching. I loved Mitchell, um and especially uh, Sanchez uh, from those Real Madrid teams. From the for, from the 1980s, um, I, uh, I I liked I had this thing for Horst Hrubisch, who uh, <laughs> the German center forward. I know it's it's unusual to be a fan of German players, but I just love that he was just such a such a battering ram and just so so fearless. Um, yeah, I mean, those were those were some of them. I guess from the time you know before I started. Uh, really covering this as a, you know, as a, 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 a covering this for a living, I should say. I am Scottish and I'm 24, so for me, I've only I've never really got to to watch the national team in a a major tournament, which which is something that's quite a shame, as I'm sure Craig and Stevie always go on about as well. You're lucky in the sense that Italy have qualified for major tournaments right through your lifetime. Growing up was watching Italy in major tournaments like the World Cup and the Euros a big part of your childhood? Oh, no question about it. Um, and in fact, or, I, mean, I can tell you a story from that, but before that, um, I can tell you a story from, well, they're both from the 82 World Cup because that's the first one I remember. So, 82 World Cup, I, um, I was very young. I was living in Germany because uh, that's where, where, where my parents were uh, working at the time. And um, I actually remember the uh, uh, Scotland's infamous game against um, against the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, and you probably know where I'm going with this. <laughs> um, and obviously in, in Shingalia and all that stuff, right? But, uh, and, and then the fact that, you know, Scotland, on that day, they broke up the Willie Miller-Alex McLeish partnership to put Alan Hansen on. Um, but many years later, it was the 2000, 
2002-2003 Champions League final in Manchester. And the night before, I was out with, uh, with, with a bunch of colleagues, many of whom happened to be Scottish. Um, and it was very, very late. Um, and everybody had, had, had had a few drinks or many drinks. And at the next table was Brian Robson together with, uh, with, um, some of his friends. And he'd also had a few drinks, um, as you can imagine. And one of my, uh, one of my dear Scottish friends, uh, Graham Hunter decided somehow the conversation turned to how much he hated Alan Hansen for costing <laughs> Scotland the 1982 World Cup, which, of course, Scotland would have definitely won. And, of course, Graham is um, a big Aberdeen fan. Yeah. So, and wonderfully charismatic, Silverton, he managed to get Brian Robson and his mates to join us in recreating the scene in the, uh, in the restaurant that we were in. So we moved tables out of the way. Um, I can't even remember if they actually had a football but we recreated the scene, somehow trying to exercise it of, of you know, of, of Alan Hansen running into Willie Miller while, while you know, McLeish is, is fuming on the bench, knowing that McLeish would have never done that. And um, and I don't know. I like to think it was uh, it was cathartic in some way for uh, uh, for my Scottish friends to be <laughs> able to do that. And uh, and by the way, uh, Brian Robson's another one. I remember him as a player. What a footballer! Um, I mean, it's. He really was one of the. I, I don't think I don't know that people necessarily appreciate him because of the injuries and because obviously United got to be really really good just as he got you know older and injured, um, but he was uh, he was unbelievable. Anyway, um, my memory of '82. So we're in Germany, um, and you know I'm it, it's summer. I'm I'm watching the games, and I remember the. Um, I remember the 82 final very clearly because it was a heat of summer, peak of summer. We didn't have air conditioning. Everybody had their windows open. And, you know, I remember watching the, uh, the final Italy playing um, Italy against West Germany, as it was then. And I remember the, the howls of disappointment um, coming through the window um, from, from various German neighbors. I remember them cheering when... Cabrini missed the penalty, and then later the goals went in, you know, one, two, three, uh, everybody getting grumpier and grumpier. And as it happened, the, uh, the next day, we, we drove from, uh, from Frankfurt in Germany to where we were living to Italy, and, and obviously, you know, our car had German license plate. And sure enough, um, just about once, in Germany it was fine, but once we entered Switzerland, uh, and there were, you know, the sort of the density of Italians around us grew. The number of people who were sort of honking and waving and rubbing it in, um, assuming we were German because we had German plates, just <laughs> grew and grew and grew. So, yeah, that, that, that's forever etched in my mind. You've, you've been lucky enough, as you've just mentioned, to watch your nation win the World Cup more than once. Is, is that just, as, as a fan, is that just something that, that is just makes you so proud of your nation? Because sadly, as, as Graham Hunter and, and I will we'll probably never experience that, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, I think, it, it, yeah, look, I mean, it, it does give you a tremendous sense of pride and it's a tremendous lift. It makes you feel part of, of a greater whole. Um, you know, you then rationalise it and... You say, well, yeah, it's great, but I don't want to get carried away with it yeah. because a, I had nothing to do with it. Um, b, it's an accident, kind of an accident of birth, right? I didn't choose to be uh, Italian. <laughs> um, whereas, to some degree, people choose whether to be fans of clubs or not. To some degree, um, so I, I always think it's a, it's, it's always an interesting question, right? Um, and I'll ask you this: well, what, what, what team do you support? I um, I've got an interesting background. Basically, I grew up a Celtic fan. My dad was on the other side of the divide. My mum's family were um, in the Celtic side, so I grew up a Celtic fan. And then my local club is Greenock Morton, and that's the club that brought uh, my dad and I together just to get rid of the rivalry. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, let me ask you this: Would you rather? Celtic win the Champions League or Scotland win the Euros? Uh, 
I think you would rather see your club side win the Champions League, wouldn't you? I know that's terrible to say, but uh, I don't know why. It just it just seems to be the, the kind of natural thing. And I think I, a friend of mine sort of has a whole theory about this. He says, and then you, know, you could say that this is all BS, right? But basically, he ties it back to people who are people who are closer to their mothers, as opposed to people who are closer to, you know, their 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 their, their, their wives or husband or, or life partners. And the idea being that obviously you don't choose your mother. People who are who remain closer to their mothers than they do their life partners tend to want tend to pick you know their team to win the World Cup. Um, people who, on the other hand, are closer to um, their, their their life partners or spouses or whatever, uh, they tend to want their club side <laughs> to go and win you know the biggest possible honor. And obviously, this you know this is all. It's all contingent, right? I mean, if you're a if you're if you're a Liverpool fan or if you're a Manchester United fan, you know you might still want England to win the world uh, to win the World Cup because you've never seen it, whereas you've seen them, you know, you've seen your club win a European Cup or whatever. Yeah. Uh, if you're English, um, but in general, very broadly, that was a theory, you know, among those who those who've never experienced one or the other. A very interesting theory, I must say. I actually quite like that analogy too, because I think it does. It does. It just makes you think. And to move the conversation on, the next thing I want to ask you about is your multilingual background. You speak several languages, and you've had a life where, because of your upbringing and the nature of the work that your parents did, you've lived in America, you've lived in the UK, Japan, Poland, Germany. What's that been like? The experience of different cultures through life. Well, I mean, I think it. It certainly makes you feel comfortable being in different surroundings, um, whereas others might feel less comfortable. Um, you know, and at the time, obviously, growing up, moving every you know two three years wasn't wasn't particularly a lot of fun. But with hindsight, um, you know, I, I think it's something that I, I certainly I certainly benefited from. Um, although it's weird now, I've been living in the same place for you know. A very long time here in London, so yeah. um, it is a bit different. Although, again, London is obviously, especially the part of town where I live, you know, is extremely is extremely cosmopolitan. There are people from all over, so you know, you still get that that sort of sense of of, of worldliness and, and diversity that you know you might not get elsewhere. And it's not for everybody. And you know, um, sometimes I kind of wish I'd. Uh, I, I were living and stayed in, you know, the same tiny village where my family's come from, but um, I haven't had that option. In terms of languages, Gab, are languages something that, because you had moved around a lot, did they come naturally to you, or was that a lot of hard work to learn them? No, I, I think, I mean, it came pretty naturally. Obviously, my first language is, is Italian, but my, my schooling was all in English. That was pretty straightforward. Um, you know, Spanish and French aren't particularly difficult to uh, to pick up if you already speak a, a Romance language. And you know, I speak some conversational Japanese from having lived there for four years. That's also because I think spoken Japanese is actually a very very easy language to learn. It's a very simple language. Um, I know it may seem daunting to some. But it is it is fairly straightforward, and German. You know, I lived in Germany sort of from the age of of seven till ten, and I think that's a very good age to um, to pick up languages. In terms of German, it's a language that maybe compared to the French and the Spanish, that's obviously slightly different. Was that harder to pick up? Um, I don't know. It's tough. I mean, I I picked up the German before. The, the the Spanish and the French. So, oh, okay. um, you know, it's 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 hard for me to say. Uh, in uh, you know, German is pretty. <laughs> it's a pretty complicated language. Yeah. Um, and I think like all languages, you have to kind of stay across it, right? So I don't get to speak it that often. So I pick it up quickly when I'm there. But 
you know you do get a little bit you do get a little bit rusty. Something to link this to football. Something I'm interested to ask yourself is. Being based in the UK, something that peeves me off as a football fan is this idea that if you've not played in the English Premier League or, in, or British football as such and you come from abroad, you've got a lot to prove and that you're somehow at times less of a player. Having a, a multicultural background, is, is that an attitude that frustrates you as well? Um, I think when it becomes sort of a, a judgment on a player as a professional... Um, I think it's um I think it's pretty it becomes pretty absurd. Yeah. Um also because you know we so often forget that this is a team sport. Absolutely. So if you look at Sheffield United, they're what? They're 6th, 7th in the table. Yeah. Um you know, they could be pushing for for, for a spot on the top 4. Break those players down as individuals. And then I'll, I'll be very honest about this. You know, um, I don't follow the football league at all. Um, so when they got promoted, I, you know, I looked at it and I asked myself, my God, how many of these guys have I actually heard of? You know, I've, I've heard of Henderson because he's a United guy. I've heard of Basham because he used to play for Bolton. <laughs> you know, I, I knew the Billy Sharp story. Um, I never actually, or I, I'd seen McBurney play once or twice on television, and I thought, my God, what is that? Uh, but then he turned out <laughs> to, to be pretty good. But then you you take Sheffield United as a whole, and they're a phenomenal team, right? They're a phenomenal side. Uh, all this idea that all this nonsense that experts about, like, oh, you need guys with Premier League um, experience? No, you don't. How much is Sheffield United as Premier League experience um, before this season? Exactly. You know, you can probably count them on, on on one hand. So this whole idea of a player coming to England and oh, he needs to prove himself in the Premier League. Yeah, the Premier League is a better league than, than most other leagues. But equally, it depends so much so much on the team, right? Depends. Absolutely. It's a team sport. It depends how they're used, how quickly you know they settle um, in, in the training ground within what the manager wants them to do. And, you know, there are, you know, there, there's a lot of players on other teams in other leagues uh, that taken as individuals are much better than most of the Sheffield United squad. In fact, there's players right now at Leeds and West Brom. I mean, if you were to do a combined 11 of, and I mentioned those two because I do know that they're uh, leading the way in the championship this season. You know, if you were to do a combined 11 of, Leeds and West Brom, uh, you know, if you were to combine them with Sheffield United and you were to get, you know, Joe Random manager, put him in charge, I don't know how many Sheffield United players would have got into the team. But it doesn't matter because working with Chris Wilder, working in his system, they're on a, they're, they are an outstanding team. And, um, and the whole becomes bigger than the, than the sum of its parts. Fascinating, and I want to lead on to to talk about another part of your career. We've talked about your broadcasting career with podcasts. We've talked about your your writing for for newspapers, for ESPN, Marcotti's Musings, amongst many others. What I want to ask you about now is your your books. You've written Paolo Di Canio's autobiography, um, a book on Fabio Capello, and the book that I finished just a few months ago was your book on Claudio Ranieri and the miracle of him winning the title at Leicester and that's something, that's one of my favourite football books um, I've read in recent years and I'm not just saying that because you're on, I just genuinely do think it's a fascinating insight to an incredible season. What's it like writing biographical books where maybe you're not working directly with the player compared to writing an autobiography that you did with Paolo? Yeah, or indeed you ever mentioned um, the book I'm probably most proud of, which is uh, uh, The Italian Job, which I yeah. wrote with, uh, with Gianluca Vialli, which is not a biography. It was a totally different genre. Yeah. But uh, where we went, you know, we went around and thanks to Luca, had access to a whole bunch of managers uh, in Italy and England who were very generous with their time, from Sir Alex Ferguson to Joseph Mourinho to Marcello Lippi to Fabio Capella to Sven Jorn Eriksson um, uh, to Arsene Wenger. Um, I mean, that was a tremendous professional experience. Um, it was certainly very different. 
I would imagine, I mean, the only ghosted autobiography I've done is Paolo Di Cagna's. Um, and obviously because he's such a unique individual um, and such an intense individual, I'm imagining that, you know, that experience would be very, very uh, different to ghosting somebody else's autobiography. Yeah. Because, you know, you didn't have to coax information out of Paolo. He just, uh, <laughs> you know, flipped, flipped on the tape recorder and just started talking and going in all sorts of different directions and, and whatever. Um, the Capella Ranieri books, uh, those are unauthorized biographies. Um, and when you write those sorts of unauthorized biographies, you know, you're not doing a hatchet job, but, um, you know, you don't have direct access to, to quote um, either person. So what you do is you talk to as many people as you can around them and, you know, you you speak to, but you still have, you know, I have relationships with both Capello and Ranieri, so I was still able to go to them and get their version of events, albeit not in quotes. One of the things that I certainly realized, um, and it's in the Capello book especially, where people remember stuff from a long time ago, different people remember it very, very differently. <laughs> um, there's a story which happened, you know, way before I was born, but uh, it's in the Capello book. It's from Capello's last year um, as a player, last year, second to last year as a player. And he'd had, you know, he, he was an outstanding, really, really good footballer, but you know, he'd had a whole bunch of knee injuries and knee problems. And at that stage, I think it was like 32 or something. And he just struggled to get around the pitch. And um, there's a man named Alberto Cerruti, who was, uh, at the time, was was a young journalist at Cazzetta Lo Sport in Milan. You know, and he wrote a piece saying, you know, this version of Capello, you might, you might as well not be there because he can't move. He just stands there, you know, barking orders and stuff. But he's, you know, he's basically just spent force and it's time for him to, to retire. So Capello didn't take this very, very well. And there are different versions as to what happened next. Well, what they agree on is that Capello waited um, for Ceruti in the, um, in, in, the, uh, in the car park at Milan's training ground. Um, and then versions diverge. And there's there's a version that's in the book, which is based on police reports and um, <laughs> testimony at the time. And then there's Capello's version when I asked about him, where Capello's version was like, well, yeah, you know, I thought he'd been unfair to me, so I told him what I thought, and he told me what he thought, and then, uh, you know, maybe I bumped him and he fell, and he fell over. <laughs> and then there's, you know, the version that was in the police report at the time where, you know, Capello basically beat the crap out of him and slammed his head into the, 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 the car, uh, into the car door and went whatever. Now the irony in all this is that this particular journalist, Ceruti became probably out of, you know, maybe probably the guy in media who's closest to Capello, the, the, the two became really, really close later. So they, they were very happy to let bygones be bygones. However, you know, you're writing a, a story like this and you know, you don't quite know how to handle it because, you know, you get two very conflicting versions. So do you put ver one version and not the other? Do you go with a balance of, of probabilities? If, if you've read the book, you, you know, you, you know what I did or I tried to do. But, um, you know, it is a reminder that people's recollections of the past, uh, and I've had this happen time and again, are often all over the place. Absolutely. And, as I say, you mentioned the Italian job book with Gianluca Vialli as well, which I was actually going to come to. Um, he's a, a character from football who fascinates me. He played in England, obviously, when I was very young. I recently spoke to Jock Brown, the former general manager of Celtic, who said he was desperate to bring him to Celtic in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, because he explained that, that basically Juventus played Rangers in a Champions League match and Gianluca was leading the warm-up and he said that just watching how he helped prepare his fellow teammates was one of the most incredible things he got the chance to see. What's Gianluca like as a person? Wow. Well, I mean, he's unlike most footballers. Um, you know, he's he comes from a, from a privileged background. Um, you know, after... After his spell in management, he um, 
uh, he went and um, he got, you know, not only did he finish his education, but he got not one, but, but two master's degrees, one in, one in sports administration and one in business. Um, you know, he's a guy who's, uh, who's put in a lot of time studying. Um, I remember when he became a pundit on, on Sky in Italy, he actually went and he, he, he hired people to, to, to study, to like, you know, to, 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 to coach him on how to present yourself on air. Um, you know, I think he approaches everything he does the way he approaches football career, you know, being maniacal about training, being very serious about it. Um, but, you know, he's also somebody who you know, he's settled here in London, has lived here in London, you know, for, for, for 20 odd years, a ton of interests um, outside of football, not just golf, but also golf. Um, he's just, you know, one of the more remarkable individuals I've met, you know, beyond his feet as a, as a player and, uh, and as a manager, you know, and people forget this, um, about, you know, people know about his playing career and captaining Juventus, the European title and winning the Serie A crown, uh, the, the, the first and, and only Serie A crown with Sampdoria and stuff. But, you know, people sometimes forget that, you know, he also, you know, at Chelsea, he won, he won five trophies, you know, he yeah. won the FA cup, he won the cup winners cup. Um, you know, at a time when, 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 when football was, was very different. Absolutely, and as you say, Pri Abramovich as well, which which highlights further just how how much those achievements mean to Chelsea as a club because they're back then. It's safe to say they weren't the Chelsea they are now. Yeah, no, it was a very different. I mean, that Chelsea team did spend a lot of money and racked up an enormous amount of debt, which is why Abramovich eventually bailed them out. Um, but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't you know the Chelsea machine that it that is now. I, I remember going to see him. At, um, and in some ways, it kind of underscores how football in England changed so radically, you know, um, between then and now. I remember going to see him at the training ground, and he was he was all out of sorts because he he needed a fax machine, and you know, he said like, you know, the crazy thing about this club is they'll give me five million pounds, which was a lot of money at the time, to uh, to buy a left back, Graham Lasso, but they won't give me 200 pounds to buy a fax machine. I mean, younger listeners, and possibly even you, probably you don't even know what a fax machine is. But you know, it was something that people used before email to go and send documents. Um, back then, Chelsea didn't have their own training ground. They they they, they hired space at uh, at a university to go train. You know, it's these things are unthinkable, but you know, back then you you genuinely had clubs that would spend money on on wages and contracts, but they wouldn't um, they wouldn't spend money on uh, on 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 what I consider to be pretty basic things like um, you know the proper adequate training facilities and medical oh, staff and comms and you know, scouting and that kind of thing. I want to finish, Gab, with a round of um, quick-fire questions for you. The first one being, who's your favourite footballer ever and why? Um, I'm going to be... I'm going to say... I'm going to say Walter Zenga because he was... He was just so cocky and he backed it up time and time again um, until of course he became a tragic figure in the 1990 World Cup semi-final mm. against Argentina Your favourite football ground to to watch football at and why? I should say San Siro because I was born next door to it <laughs> but I'm going to say the Westfalen Stadion um, home to Borussia Dortmund um, because that's simply breathtaking and also I was there when Italy beat Germany in the World Cup semi-final in wow. 2006. Your, who's the manager you've admired most from your time covering football or your, your lifetime, really? I mean, the most impressive one all round, um, beyond just football, um, I would have to say, is probably Sir Alex Ferguson. 
Um, within a football sphere, there's a whole bunch I could mention. Um, you know, certainly, certainly Pep Guardiola, Arrigo Sacchi, um, guys like that, uh, Lobanovsky. I mean, anybody who's kind of, you know, thought outside the box and, and, and had the courage to execute it and been proven right. If you were a manager, what kind of system would you play and how would you set your team up? Well, it would entirely depend on the players. Mm. Um, no, but um, <laughs> that's a bit of a cop-out. Uh, obviously, it does depend on the players. Yeah. But one thing I would like to see, and I think there's data to support this, is um, this is an idea that I remember Owen Hargreaves used to bang on about this, and I think he's absolutely right. If you look at it, most teams, and I am generalizing here, they will generally play two taller central defenders, um, you know, if they're playing a back four. And thanks to analytics, now, you, you, you can see the logic, right? There's a long ball over the top. I want a taller guy who's presumably good in the air uh, to clear the ball away. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, obviously, you know, if a cross comes in, I want my taller guys to be there on their taller players to clear the ball away. And so it makes sense for them to be in the center. But I think we have analytics that shows in the modern game in terms of risk reward, a lot of times do I really want my, you know, six foot four David Weir type out there in the open field, defending against a nippy winger on a counterattack or in transition, or would I be better off with, with a smaller player, you know, who can keep up with him, who might have the agility to go one way or another. Um, I, I, I think open field tackling is becoming more important. And I'd love to see teams, you know, maybe even kind of split that sort of center back role, you know, have get to the point. I'm, I'm just, I mean, I'm thinking out loud now, but get to the point where, you know, maybe you have a smaller, more agile guy, um, to deal with those situations alongside a more traditional central defender because, you know, the rest of the time on set pieces, you can put whoever you want to mark whoever you want. Uh, and the other point that Hargreaves made is that, you know, smaller, more agile players, and I think he would have probably put himself uh, in that category. I think he was 5'11", maybe, but Owen says he, he said that he could, he could dunk a basketball, so obviously he was quite agile. He says, if you know, <clears throat> if you know how to defend on headers, you can, you know, you might not win the header, but you can always put somebody off. And it's really all that you really, you know, that's all that you need if you then have the agility to, to recover. So, I don't know, I, I'd love to see somebody um, with the courage to do that. Um, you know, maybe Chris Wilder, right? He gave us big overlapping center backs. Maybe his next move will be the guy in the middle will be, a, a, you know, a little nippy agile type. I don't know. Good, good point. A few non-football ones: beach holiday or city break. Can I say mountain holiday? <laughs> of course, absolutely. That's summer, mountains in summer. That's that's kind of my thing. Um, favorite film? Sorry. Favorite film? Oh, I'll give you two: The Breakfast Club and uh, Third Man. Favourite band? Uh, I mean, again, at the risk of dating myself, but probably Guns N' Roses. Great choice. Or Dire Straits. <laughs> Very good. Um, two, two wee quick ones to finish on. If you had to pick a five-a-side team from your colleagues at ESPN, who would be in it and why? Well, I mean, Shaka, obviously, because we need a we need a goalkeeper. Ali Moreno would be the would be the poacher, <laughs> um, and you know we we need Craig to uh, uh, to bark out instructions. Frank LaBeouf, I think, would provide uh, ample defensive cover, and uh, and Stevie would provide the quality. Brilliant, and I want you to challenge that. Sorry, sorry. Oh, I, oh, I've left out Don Hutchinson, and I feel bad. I feel really bad at leaving out Don Hutchinson because you know that he captained Everton the last yeah. time that they won uh, uh, 
a Merseyside derby uh, at Anfield. But sorry, Don. <laughs> I'm going to challenge you. So you've picked that five-a-side team from ESPN. If you had to pick a five-a-side team from your fellow football writers and broadcasters to take them on, who would be in that team and why? Oh. Okay, so I think leaving age aside, but um, Julian Loins is a very good footballer. Um, so I would definitely have him. Um, I like to think I could do a, I could do a job um, as, a, as a deep-lying uh, midfielder. Um, Raph Honigstein, I'd want to have him just because he's German and, you know, he would scare some of them into thinking that, you know, the Germans always, uh, always win. Um, I, Sid Lowe can get around a little bit and, um, yeah, that would, and I would make my old buddy Guillaume Balaguer playing goal. <laughs> Brilliant. And the last thing, sorry, I wanted to ask this earlier, you went to cover the Champions League final last year and you were with Stevie Nichol in, in Spain. Just how fussy is Stevie Nichol? Is that reflection on, on the show very true in person t- as well? When it comes to eating, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, as you know, if you watch the show, uh, you only eat two things. So, <laughs> you know, it just got involved some kind of mince and or or, or, or potatoes, um, and he really hasn't deviated from that. I'd be curious to know, like, if you were if you were starting out in football today and was dealing with the kind of you know diets that you find at football training ground, how how could he possibly cope? <laughs> was was Going into restaurants and stuff over in Madrid, was it with him? Was it just basically impossible to to get him to eat? No, it was all right. It was all right. I mean, we just made sure that, you know, Spain has a good tradition of, of red meat. So, you know, we, we made sure that we, we, we could keep him fed. Brilliant. Thank you for your time, Gab. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and I wish you all the best for the rest of the year and beyond. Thank you. Pleasure's on mine. Good luck with the podcast. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave